Welcome to the Looped In podcast, exploring the infinite possibilities of AI in the music and entertainment industry. Today I'm here with David Simmons, not necessarily a household name when it comes to the music world, but this is the man who's worked with the likes of Bob Marley, John Denver, Phil Collins, Motorhead, to name a few. Thank you for talking to us today, David. So could you just start from the beginning and tell us a little bit about how you first became involved in the music industry? Yes, yeah, so I started became an accountant and the the practice had a reasonable number of clientele in the film industry. Yeah, there were a lot of people independently living off the film industry because we had one in those days. There was a film industry here. So you could do all, all the things that are related to a, a film thing. You could set up independently and do it and do very well. And then the film industry died almost overnight in the 69, 70, something like that. And all the funding went out. So you really no films were getting made here. So all the people had to live off the industry, do what they'd even do today. Australia and Canada started to make films. So they went over, because there were subsidies. And they went, they, you know, film producers have to follow the money. Uh, and everybody who works with a film producer has to follow the money. So we sort of lost all those clients. But out, as the film industry died, the independent film industry died, the music industry was created because there wasn't a music industry. So once you get into the early 60s and really around the Beatles, I mean, there was there was stuff, but I mean, uh, 10 years before that or, or anything, I can't remember when the charts, when Enemy created their first charts, I think it was late 50s, all the charts were American Ballad, Perry Como, uh, Pat Boone, people like that. And then once you had the explosion coming out of Liverpool, where not only were these groups successful, but they were globally successful, uh, as, as it's proven by the Beatles. And not only that, but they could write songs. And up until then, it was assumed that artists couldn't write songs. So the Beatles writing... I mean, the Beatles didn't have an album. I think their fourth album was the first one that had all their compositions on. All the first three had other covers of American songs on them. Roll over Beethoven. To discover that, that you know, English musicians could, could write great songs. And, of course, once somebody had done it, all the others were like, well, I could write a great song as well. <laughs> and all these sort of local scallywag writers around who weren't singers could write hit songs, you know, and it was incredible. The solicitors that we knew through the film industry, you know, we all sort of fed one another clients, and they started to feed us clients, and, for you know, for whatever reason, maybe because I was enthusiastic, they, they fell on my table, and... They weren't you know, massive clients. I mean, Elkie Brooks, who's still around, was one of my clients, and a few other. I don't think any, anything at that stage really happened until, you know, Fleetwood Mac, the, the, you know, until we started to act for Fleetwood Mac. And that, that was before they became famous. Their manager, I don't know how he came to the firm, but he came to the firm, Clifford Davis, and he managed a couple of bands, and we were acting for him. And he said, look, I've signed this group called Fleetwood Mac. Would you act for them? And Peter came in. And the rest didn't have too much to, to, to do with the business of the band. Um, and Peter came in and we got on OK. I mean, Peter was an East End Jewish boy, very much so. Very, you know, he had all the traits of an East End Jewish boy. And he was now growing, not even more so than the underground scene as a, um, as a guitarist. You know, there, there, there were, you know, Daubings on the wall, Peter Green is God, you know, like they did with Eric Clapton. But I mean, so he was really, but he was really rhythm and blues. 
that's where the influences were. And as he put the band together, they went over to Chicago to record an album with the, with the rhythm and blues situation. Then the group had Albatross as a, as a single, which was Mammoth. And their manager was the publisher of the band, which was very good for him. Not particularly marvellous for them, but very good for him. And the band went on, you know, to three or four. Nothing really reached the heights of Albatross, but, you know, there are three or four pretty big hits in there. Oh, well, Green Man Alishi, uh, Man of the World. And after about three or four, Peter had had enough and he left. They went over to the West Coast. They certainly weren't a West Coast band, but they met up with, uh, they, they saw in a club, they saw Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham. Rumours, biggest selling album of all time. Uh, I was no longer the accountant. I was sort of ditched because they were over in America. They had a big lawsuit going on with the manager. I was friendly with the manager. I supported them, him. Perhaps not a great career move to give up the biggest <laughs> group of all time. And then they had, you know, Fleetwood Mac, the next album. It was just you know, amazing. So they went on to be a super group. Could you tell me a little bit about the 26th of January, 1977, and what happened between you and Peter Green? So the band was a druggy band, a very druggy band. And one of the things that worked in terms of the, the, the writing that went into uh, a Fleetwood, the Fleetwood Mac album, Rumours album, was that the, the integration, you know, people were having affairs with one another and the road is, it was all very, very strange. Pete, Pete wasn't part of all that. But he had been very involved in acid with the, uh, which I think he first took in Germany, and yeah, was heavily affected by by drugs. No, no question about it. I don't think he was an alcoholic, but he, he was very affected by drugs. And I had the responsibility of collecting his money because there were royalties, and paying out his bills and paying him money uh, as he needed to live. And it was never a lot of money. And then one day he came in and said, "David, I want to give away all my money." Money's bad, and I said, All right, Pete, I said, um, ain't gonna pay the bills. Well, don't worry about that. Okay, so it wasn't a very long conversation, so I was left with a professional dilemma because do I take my client's instruction and give away all his money? Which I'm sure somebody would have said, You shouldn't have done that, you had a professional responsibility. Or do I not take his instruction and hold on to his money? In which case, somebody would have said, well, why didn't you take your client's instructions? So I didn't. Pete says he only asked to give away some. It wasn't he asked to give away all his money. And uh, I didn't give it away. I held the money. And he, in two, within two weeks, he was coming and asking for the rent. So Pete's father, Joe, looked a bit like Alf Garnett. And he wrote me up and he said, Mr. Simmons, he said, my son wants to give all his money to charity. He said, tell him charity begins at home, which I thought was a lovely line. <laughs> his family did live off him a bit. Yeah, there was a few brothers and there. Anyway, so Pete wandered off into his own world. I was now, the manager had signed an agreement with me to, to publish, to, to administer the songs that he published, which included Albatross and all of that. You know, and that all, all generated a lot of money. The manager lost to the lawsuit. And Fleetwood Mac went on to, you know, great things, but very, very strange personal lives. In those days, the uh, the rate of tax in this country was 83%. And then there was a super tax of 15%. So you could pay 98% of your income in tax. And there was also 
a tax on capital, which it was quite hard to, but you could get up to 103%. That was obviously, you know, big earners didn't want to pay that sort of money. So we set up overseas shelter companies. So Fleetwood Mac were my employees. <laughs> I was their employer <laughs> through an offshore company. You know, that worked out quite well. That was very lucrative work. Saved them a lot of money. <laughs> Could you elaborate on what happened between you and Peter when he came to your office? So, yeah, I got a call New Year's Eve from the manager, Clifford, and said, David, look, he said, I, f- I feel I have to tell you this, OK? Pete's got a, a gun, a shotgun, and he thinks you're God and I'm the devil. And he's coming around to shoot the windows out of your office and then you. Uh, okay. He said, what are you going to do about it? I said, well, I know what I'm going to do about it because I thought very quickly on my feet. <laughs> I'm going around to several, several Road police station, which was considered the sort of entertainer's police station because where it was. <laughs> um, and um, I'll have him nicked. Meanwhile, my wife was ringing saying, oh, it's New Year's, where are you? have got New Year's Eve party. Oh, well, something's come up at the office, darling. I'll, you know, I'll be home as I can. So I walk along to several Road police station. And I walk in, good evening, sir, good evening. How can we help you? Well, I told the story. Mm, they said, well, he hasn't shot you yet, sir, has he? No, he has not shot me yet. And I'd quite prefer him not to shoot me yet. And they thought, oh, well, I was being sarcastic. So they weren't that impressed. I said, look, I, said, I don't want Pete, he's a friend. I don't want him arrested. Just take the gun away. You, you Believe me, you do not want this guy walking running around London with a shotgun. This is one of the last people you want. He'll either shoot himself, he'll shoot his dad, he'll shoot somebody. Anyway, the the police picked him up. He did have the gun, he had the cartridges. Um, and they sectioned him, which I was very upset about because I didn't want that to happen to Pete. But afterwards, even Pete himself, his, his family certainly were very appreciative of what I did because they, they could see what was going to happen. And even Pete said, yeah, it was all right, yeah. He, I don't think he said you did the good thing, but he, he was he was okay. And at some point, he became a grave digger. That's where he started. Because he still had money coming in, but Pete Green became a grave digger in Jewish cemeteries. And it, it, was Pete, it slowly came back together for Pete, and he got his band together, the Splinter Group. He got married. He went through changes in his personal life. And I think he got the commission that he deserved in his lifetime. He was revered as one of the great guitarists. And I think he spent his final years, you know, happy but it was a very checkered life so how did you learn about music publishing what was great about the music publishing in those days nobody knew what it was about not even the lawyers nobody knew what it was about like this secret society and a lot of the components of it like the performing rights society all little secret societies so nobody challenged it and and, um you know people just sort of there were a few independent publishers like dick james who had the beatles publishing um who knew what what was going on, um, particularly on a global basis. I mean, you know, no computers. I mean, you're sending over music titles to Japan. You know, somebody's got to translate it. You know, she loves you in Japan, (laughs) Japanese. It's not going to come out right. And I used to do quite a lot of speeches in America, particularly in the southern states. We represented a studio called Muscle Shoals Studios, which were very, very big studios at the time. Yes, the Rolling Stones were there, Dylan was there, it was very, very big. And I used to say to them, look, if there's three of you that write a song, 
make sure you're the f first one on those titles. Make sure your name is the first one because you'll be the one that gets paid. The other two won't get paid because nobody can be bothered to get. Now also, if you've got a strange name, change it to Adam because <laughs> that way you've got a good name a chance of it translating in Japanese and wherever else this is going to go, France, Germany, Scandinavia, that was true. When you first came into the industry, do you think that artists were exploited? Artists were ripped off terribly and particularly black artists which is where I sort of ended up working a lot, not intentionally, but um, black artists got a very bad deal. So how did you meet Danny Sims and become part of Chad Records? Danny Sims came into my, my firm's office. I didn't become a partner there until 1972, so I wasn't a partner. Hadn't really seen anybody like him. You know, it, it was, he was a very confident black man and a very good-looking and dynamic man. And you didn't really see that in those days. You know, it just... Maybe my life was too sheltered, but it just, you know, he was a bit of a you know, phenomenon, really. And he came in as if he owned the world, and, and, uh, and he was over here with Johnny Nash and Bob Marley. And uh, through Danny, Danny said, you've got to meet my lawyer. And I think Walter Hoffer came to my office first. Walter had been the lawyer to the first British invasion of musicians, so the Beatles in particular, and Robert Stigwood, the producer, and Dave Clark Five, and many, many more. And um, Danny Walter came to see me, and he said, "Why don't you come over to office in New York? New York, <laughs> nobody had been to New York. You know, it was great. Oh, I right, go to New York." And Walter had formed a company called Copyright Service Bureau as an independent publishing administration company. And what he had done is set up arrangements all around the world to pick up the money at source in Australia, France. It was picked up there by his you know, associates and came back to him. So it increased a writer's opportunity to get their revenue by a thousand percent. And I went over there, he said, would you like to open up in the UK? I said, yeah, sure, yeah, great. And that's when I, I formed a company called, I don't know why I used Leo Song, but Leo Song Copyright Service Bureau Limited, which was in association with Walter's company. And I slowly found out about what music publishing was all about. It took a very long time. And I say the professional, you know, top lawyers are going, what does this mean? What does that mean? It was a term I used to use called copyright control. So after a bit of that, copyright control means nobody gets paid because <laughs> they don't know who the writers are, the publishers. I found there a niche that I could do and I built that up and I saw it as an opportunity to leave the accountancy practice. And this was my way out of something that I didn't hate. I mean, I like the fact that we had these you know, stupid offices, which I'd helped build. In, and we, we went over to Bolton Street in Mayfair. We bought an old building and refurbed it. They looked really good. And I thought there was enough in Leo Song that I'd be able to you know, feed my family and build up. And it did. You know, it was, it was uh, a fairly slow build, but it was all right. What was your first real publishing hit? I had a song called Baby Makes Her Blue Jeans Talk by Dr. Hook. These were all signed in America. I, it took me a while to start signing acts in the UK. Muscle Shoals Studios, they had Old Time Rock and Roll, which was a big hit. Well, I had I Shot the Sheriff, which was written by Bob Marley. Which of Bob Marley's tracks did you have on the books? I think maybe the hit, this song before, Guava Jelly. I mean, these all came out of the, the sessions with Johnny Nash. 
and Guava Jelly was recorded by uh, Barbara Streisand, I think, on her first album. Yeah, so there were some hits coming there, and I then picked up the um, Don McLean catalogue, American Pie and all that. Um, so there were some, you know, there was, start, started to build up a reputation, um, generated enough money for me to pay advances to some artists. Uh, I signed Lionel Bart, who is probably the greatest British uh, writer of, of musicals. And that was a disaster. Because <laughs> he was a disaster. There were a few disasters in there. Uh, but that's, you know, that's what happens. If you, you, know, if you, if you, you pay advances to people, they don't all work out. Yeah. A few new artists. Lionel Bart wrote arguably the best British musical of all time, which was Oliver. He'd also, in the 60s, he was very much, I mean, Lionel was gay. He was very much part of the scene in the early 60s. And he wrote Living Doll for Cliff Richard. Um, so Lionel was quite prolific, and then he wrote o Oliver, which was an enormous, enormous show. It was an absolutely stunningly brilliant show. Uh, he could never repeat it, and his life went. For he never, he, he was never able to um, uh, to get anywhere near that. He had a couple of shows that failed. Um, I was managing a young producer, and I put him together with Lionel just to try and get Lionel to finish stuff, and he couldn't. Do it. Lionel didn't have the confidence to finish anything. And it just became a horrible, horrible relationship. Um, once again, he's, you know, a self-destructive man. Um, rapidly going downhill with booze and drugs. But there's a happy story about Lionel, because he, he is very, very, very important in the, in the sort of history of British songwriters. Um, Lionel went bankrupt twice and sold all, anything he had that he got rid of, all his right, performing rights, all that, he got rid of it all. So he lived on handouts, basically. And then the producer Cameron McIntosh decided to uh, revive Oliver. And he didn't need to pay out Lionel, because Lionel had signed his rights away. And he said, no, I'm not putting Oliver on without paying Lionel Bart. And Lionel got paid his due. So Lionel sort of got the acclaim. He did an advert for Hovis Bread or something. And he sort of, you know, he was back. You know, it was Lionel. And like it, Lionel was a real sort of cheeky chappy. You know, he knew everybody. Everybody. Because um, Oliver was such a big success. As a film as well. It was an enormous success. So, you know, but my relationship with him, and I can, I can work with most musicians and artists. I'm good at that. Could never really one because I was much lower down the scale in in Lionel's world than you know he's out hanging out with John Lennon and then he comes and hangs out with me you know it's, Lionel was very so that was a problem. Did you do any publishing work for the Beatles? So I had a client who picked up the rights to the Beatles at the Star Club in Hamburg, which is where they really honed their craft, and they were playing in these horrible, smelly little. <laughs> Cells, you know, with, with sailors from Hamburg, and these were the guys who were bringing over records from America, the sailors and the air stewardesses, and they'd hear this, and they'd play those sort of things. And the owner of the Star Club, he said to the uh, John Lennon, "Do you mind if I record you?" John said, "No, as long as you get the beers in." That actually stood up in court. That actually, that actually that phrase stood up in court. Um, so he put the beers in, recorded them. And we had My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean, some of the early, late, you know, the, the earlier Beatles tracks. My client put it out, 
He said, can you arrange this overseas, which I did. We got quite a lot of money for it, about a million dollars in all. And it did okay. I mean, it didn't set the world alight. But up until that, that was a sort of test situation, because up until that point, artists didn't go into court. They, never, they didn't see them coming into court. But then Bruce Springsteen came over to court, another American, uh, and George Harrison went into court to contest my client's rights to, to the album. Without fail, I don't know it's the same now, but without fail, if, an, if the, George Harrison goes into a courtroom, then no way the judge is going to find it my favour. No way at all. When I licensed it to the American company, small company, I said, look, make sure you put a provision aside for the Beatles, the royalty. Yeah, 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 yeah. About a year later, the guy who had licensed them to, Lee Halpin, he said, they're trying to take my money. I said, Lee, you're not the fifth Beatle. You weren't on the record. <laughs> you're, you're a distributor. <laughs> anyway, he lost it. And um, yeah, then two or three acts came over and actually went into the British court. You know, and, uh, I say Springsteen did. And somebody else big did. Um, and the judges thought, oh, I've got George Harrison. <laughs> so why did you sell the business to film tracks? I sold the business to film tracks because I was being quite successful with my the people that I signed. Um, I signed that called Patrice Russian, who had a, a big hit with Forget Me Nots, um, the George Michael sample. Yeah, we were doing that was actually after I lost the representation. I had the Gap Band. I had with Oops Upside Your Head. I had all sorts of things, and I was doing okay, some disco stuff, but. It, business became very competitive and I didn't have the funding to, you know, I, I was getting outbid. If my acts got too successful, they, most of my stuff seemed to s sit around number eight or nine in the charts. But if it went to number one, the big boys would come in and I couldn't compete. You know, there's only so many times that your wife allows you to put a mortgage on the house to sign. <laughs> a lot of I'd signed a lot of metal, Motorhead, Twisted Sister. I mean, they're all great bands. Um, but... You know, I couldn't compete with the big boys. So I sold to Film Tracks, um, who I knew quite well. They'd raised a ton of money from the pension fund of the Merchant Seaman. How they got involved in music, I have no idea. It was run by a lunatic guy. And <laughs> he kept thinking, well, he'll lay the money off somewhere. And he didn't. He said, no, I said, I'll pay for it. You know, we'll do it ourselves. And he made available tens of millions of pounds. So <laughs> we um, we bought from Columbia Pictures their publishing division. That's what gave us uh, film. Because when, when you write for a movie, no matter who you are, the the, produce, the the film company will own the the publishing. You get no choice. So they owned um, Englishman in New York, Sting. They owned uh, Against All Odds, Phil Collins. They owned Greatest Love of All. So we got all those into it, paid a lot for them. We got all those into our family, you know, they're big songs. And, you know, we, we carried on buying companies. We owned, uh, we bought a company called Bellwin Mills, which gave us the title to, it was a big, big song, I think titled to, to EastEnders. We had in there, through Bellwin Mills, we had the, the publishing for Joseph and the Amazing Coloured Dreamcoat which much against my will and advice, the powers that be said, well, we're going to sell that to get a bit of money back because Andrew Lloyd Webber said, I, won't, I will never produce that play unless I own the publishing. 
Yes, he would, you know. But anyway, they get, they, he offered a million, he gave us a million pounds for that. Um, it was Coronation Street we had with Bell Mills. We had the theme to Coronation. I think it was our biggest earning song, theme to Coronation Street. I was signing a lot of writers. I signed Michael Nyman, who um, did the score for the piano and was very heavily, you know, very well regarded. I signed Don, Don Black, who was Andrew Lloyd Webber's lyricist. Um, you know, a few TV writers, which was my brief. That's what I was meant to do. We, we were funding and publishing a lot of soundtracks. We did um, Room with a View and With Nell and I. Uh, there was a lot of stuff. So in the end, we did a, no, it wasn't a fire sale. I mean, it, it wasn't my decision. I, wasn't, I was on the board, I was director, but I wasn't like, in that respect, a top decision maker. Uh, in the end, we sold it to EMI. And we, made, we, we, yeah, we did okay, but not as great as it should have been. We just, it's timing. You know, if you get your timing wrong, <laughs> sometimes it's luck, but... You generally find people that are very successful have a very good sense around timing, when, when, to, when to do and when not to do it. So what was it like working with Lemmy and Motorhead? Uh, with the Metal Boys, I think with Motorhead we always knew some... Motorhead would never quite got to the stage that they should have done, and I don't know why. Maybe we did something wrong, I don't know. I mean, they, Metallica were sort of formed based around Motorhead, and Metallica went on to sell a zillion records. And we, Motorhead did okay, but not as big as they should have done. So some of the metal boys signed about yeah, Twisted Sister. I always felt was yeah. I mean, once again, Lemmy, you know, Lemmy's world was <laughs> Lemmy's world. Lemmy's idea of a good time. Lemmy would go to a nightclub and spend the whole whole evening putting coins into a fruit machine. That's what he would do. It. Just yeah, holding hours. And Lemmy was a heavy user of drugs and drink, drank a pint of Bourbon a day. And the doctor said to him, you know, Lem. You know, you can start taking life a bit easier looking after so he switched to vodka. <laughs> uh, but he was, Lemmy was very clever. He, he, if you were on a pub quiz, you'd want Lemmy with you, cause certainly on music, he was terrific. He, he was a nice guy, Lem. Yeah, he wasn't fierce. Well, at one point, he was signed to our record company, GWR, and we had the publishing. And it was Motorhead's 10th anniversary. In this sort of Hell's Angels world, that's a big day. You know? It's like Yom Kippur, you know, it's a big day. So it's at the Hammersmith Odeon, so go up there. And outside, it's like a scene from a Marlon Brando movie. There were so many bikes everywhere. You know, so we go in, Lem's doing what he does. And the leader of the Hell's Angels was a guy called... I'll come to me in a minute. Tramp. Allegedly, he always carried a machete with him. I'm not sure. That might have just been legend. But anyway. Um, and Tramp decided after a few songs, he got up on stage, put his arm around them, and started singing Happy Birthday to Motorhead. Lem was still going to bed. He's singing Happy Birthday. Well, you know, it's Tramp starts singing Happy Birthday to Motorhead. Everybody else sings Happy Birthday to Motorhead. Which is very funny the first time. After the tenth time, Lem still goes... <laughs> Lem hasn't changed his expression one bit. And nobody can tell Tramp, you know, get off, because <laughs> he's tramped. Um, that was quite funny. And what we did also with Motorhead, they were always in trouble. You know, but fun trouble, but always in trouble. And something happened in Finland, I can't remember what. And they ended up in jail. And we got this phone call, you know, got to get some money to get them out of jail. I sort of worked out the mathematics of putting them in a hotel for three days as opposed to leaving them in jail. So we decided to leave them in jail. 
which does sound cruel. But when the Finnish police realised they had Motorhead, they went crazy. I mean, the police parted with them. They were coming from all over the country. They were partying with them for three days solid. Best time band had ever had. <laughs> Hanging out with these crazy Finnish policemen. So, and it couldn't have happened to a band, you know, more so than the Motorhead. I mean, they were the perfect band to do it with. They loved it. Who would you say is one of your more peculiar acts that you had on the books? Uh, we had a band called Thor. There was a, one of, I think it was Mr. Canada, and his act, he would blow up a hot water bottle on stage and let it burst. That was quite a hard thing to do. Blow up a hot water bottle until it burst. And then, yeah. Well, you know, it, it totally ruined his lungs. <laughs> because the doctor said, you, know, you can't stop this, mate, because you, know, you can't have that explosion going into your lungs all the time. Um, is there any artist that really stood out to you? I think I was of being. I'm very rarely in awe of an artist. Yeah. Um, John Denver. I was very, very proud to sign John. I've, I, I had the publishing for the UK signed through his American publisher and manager because he was just, you know, he he was really something. I mean, he had amazing talent as a writer and as a singer. Um, and I met him a couple of times, and he was really sweet. You know, so I thought, mm, I'm proud of that one. You know, that's, that that's really good. Um, obviously Bob Marley uh, was amazing Was that the first time you'd worked with Bob Marley? Uh, in England when he was over here Danny, Danny Sims brought him over here in 1968 or whenever the contract was around about there and Danny was still living over here didn't go back to him he had some problems in America so he didn't go back to America for a while and um, Bob was over here with I'm not sure. There was a backing band called Sons of the Jungle, and they, I'm, I think they came over to tour with... I don't know whether they came over initially with Bob, but they came over from Jamaica to tour with Bob. So the Whalers were... I don't know where the Whalers were. I don't know, a bit of confusion and all that. But anyway, um, so Bob was here. Cold. Very difficult for him. Cold. Not the food, because he was, I think, vegetarian. Uh, but even if he wasn't vegetarian, you know, very much Jamaican home cooking was his thing. Didn't hated the food here. Um, but, you know, he sort of adapted very well. Bob and Alan Cole. Alan Cole, I think, played soccer for um, Jamaica, I think, and was sort of Bob's friend, sort of manager. And, and he sort of comfortably sat in somewhere with Danny Sims as, as sort of, Danny, the main manager, and Alan was there looking after Bob. Um, and they all loved soccer. And Bob was playing was playing soccer somewhere in uh, West London. I think near Worm and Scrubs. And that's where he had the accident that um, has been attributed to the creation of his cancer. Somebody, somebody, I heard that it was Danny Baker um, who uh, <laughs> dropped on his toe. That's meant to be the start of when you know, uh, of, the, of, of the cancer that eventually killed him. So Bob, you know, one of the ones, ones that, with Island Records as well that he was signed to, you know, there were a lot of black rootsy people there. So he'd have a community then that he, he could be with. The rest of the community was, I think, pretty small still in, in around Notting Hill, all of that. 
What was Bob's major break in the UK market? His breakthrough here on TV was he did the old grey whistle test. I know Bob Harris quite well, and he, he was a big fan of Bob Marley. That's a, that's a very famous uh, video clip of Bob Marley on the way that, on old grey whistle. But it was still like, what's all this about? You know, that's a bit strange, all that. So it took a while to get to the great live concert in the Lyceum, which was where he broke through. You know, that's when people got it. And then, then that's where he broke through. And it's a wonderful thing to see. I've seen it with um, a band called Manhattan Transfer. I was the evening when they broke. You can tell, when with Springsteen, when he was here, the first performance, you know, you, you, you just know it. You just know it's there and that this is the night that it's happened and their lives will never be the same. What do you think Danny saw in Bob when he first met him? Well, I do know what Danny saw in Bob because... Uh, um, Danny had had this uh, nightclub in New York, Sapphire, which was a big mob thing, hang out. What do you mean by mob? They're mafia people, put money into it. And if they put money into it, it would be become a mafia hangout. Still early days for you know black society, even for you know musicians and actors and things like that, didn't have the, still have the great acceptance that they, they would have today. It still weren't allowed in certain hotels. So, you know, it, was, it was still pretty bad. So this became a big black club. Danny met, I can't remember how he met Johnny Nash. It was probably through Sapphire he met Johnny Nash, who was a beautiful man. He was stunning. He, he was handsome, but he was also a beautiful man. He just shone in it, radiant. Women adored him. And Danny became Johnny's manager, and, and then things got a little bit out of hand with Sapphire and Danny's partners. They probably wanted some of their money back, I think, something like that. <laughs> so Danny and Johnny hightailed down to Jamaica, and that was a big event in Jamaica. There was only two pretty primitive studios. Uh, Leslie Kong had one, and Cox and Dodd had the other. And Bob did a bit of recording there. But when Johnny Nash arrived in Jamaica, this was a big deal. This, this was, I mean, Danny had booked other accents. He had booked Aretha Franklin in Jamaica. But Johnny going down there to record an album, I mean, every musician that could get there got there to hang out with Johnny. And Bob caught Johnny's eye, and Johnny listened to what, some of Bob's songs, and he, he said, Danny, we've got to sign this guy. This, this is guy's genius. So they did. Johnny recorded on his big... Out, uh, not, I don't think I Can See Clearly was recorded in Jamaica. I think it was recorded in New York or England. But I Can See Clearly came out and was a global hit. Number one record, and it's still a standard today. Beautiful record. And Johnny recorded two or three of Bob's songs, Stir It Up, Guava Jelly, I think, two or three on the album, which gave Bob his first commercial break. Now Bob was in the business and it was published. And people then, uh, like uh, Eric Clapton and Barbara Streisand, went on to record some of his songs. Danny signed Johnny and Bob to CBS Records. Jad licensed them to CBS Records. CBS put out Johnny's I Can See Clearly, which was a massive global hit. They put out Bob Marley. Reggae on Broadway, they put two singles out, Reggae on Broadway and something else I can't remember, and failed. Nothing happened. So CBS dropped Bob 
Danny set something up which was brilliant. I'd never seen it done before. He set up a tour of schools for Johnny and Bob to go around to schools playing acoustic guitar and singing. It was very successful. All kids in around the country seeing Bob Marley. I mean, they could relate to Johnny because the music of both he and Bob Marley. But there's still some photos around of kids looking back and saying, oh, I was there, you know, I was there. I kicked the ball with Bob Marley in the school playground, you know, so it, it sort of worked. Anyway. Was exploitation common for artists in that time? All of these black artists from the 50s and 60s, you know, Fats Domino, um, Ray Charles, you know, there's dozens of them. You have enormous hits, and they wouldn't get paid a penny. They made a bit of money when they toured, but they wouldn't see their record money. Um, and when they toured, they'd be ripped off. Um, telling me something about... They went to a studio, and this iconic black artist was, was painting this, the walls because he didn't have any money. He wanted to make some money painting the wall. I'll come back to me in a minute. So they were all totally ripped off, whether they were signed to independent labels or major labels. Major labels were worse than the independent labels. Can you tell us a bit about how Chris Blackwell became involved with Bob Marley? So Chris Blackwell is a genius, white Jamaican, which is you know, very interesting because people take him to be a white North American, but he's not, he's white Jamaican, and thinks very differently to Western people. He's very unique. Absolute genius in you know, his labour with Cat Stevens, U2, uh, Bob Marley, Cranberries, uh, just one, one after, you know, brilliant. Anyway, he'd been sniffing around Bob, and uh, Bob signed to Ireland Records, and Ireland paid an override royalty to uh, CBS and Danny, a combined royalty of 4%, so Danny split, that was split between CBS and uh, Danny. If you haven't, if you can't handle the relationship, you ain't going to cut it. No, I mean Chris Blackwell was brilliant at that. You know, Chris. I remember, Chris was. Um, Chris would go in the studio and produce the album. You know, he he would. There were stories of when you two were signed and nothing was happening. There was a huge negative balance on their account, and one and Chris's business guys sent him a fax at the time and said, you know, we've got to write this band off. Uh, you know, nothing's going to happen. And Chris's reply was, under no circumstances. You know, Chris would dig in and dig in and stay until, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you've got to be a personality. I mean, the big managers in this country, and to some degree America, you know, they were big personality and often quite dangerous people, you know, crooked, dangerous people um, like Don Arden. How did you become involved in working with Boy George and, and Culture Club? In terms of true iconic people, um, you have Marilyn Monroe and you have Muhammad Ali who would pretty much be known around the world anyway not so much Elvis Presley there would be parts of the world that they didn't know Elvis but you know Marilyn Monroe and Muhammad Ali are still today recognised pretty much around the planet and for a while George became part of that gang you know he was truly iconic you could have dropped George anywhere uh, in the world and they say oh it's boy George and what was interesting is when he went over to America with that whole new fashion thing that uh, wow what's this you know like, <laughs> like, like, like he got through customs but I mean yeah nothing and they'd go in the Midwest and they'd walk in they'd walk into these sort of cowboy bars they go Whoa. you know this is <laughs> but George could look after himself and um in the end they'd all be drinking beers together I mean it was all like yeah he, he won over that thing 
getting to the good bit now. <laughs> um, so yeah, George had a terrific personality, and he could light up whatever George was on TV or anything. He lit up the whole thing. So, you know, that was a very strange part of my life because to have a forty-year relationship between a, a professional accountant and an artist or client. I mean, but a, a client that sort of takes over the world with his image. That's quite something. I don't quite know. Well, I do know how I did it. I did it because I think with John Moss, I, I had a relationship that worked. And without that, I probably couldn't have done it. It would have, yeah, it's a very unusual thing. But at, um, yeah, so the you know, Culture Club came into my life. You know, that was quite crazy. I did get a phone call from some strange people in America from time to time who claim that they, the, the band owed them money for sweeties and flowers that had been bought in the limo and, and um, they'd been told that I should pay for them. Okay, yeah, so we had to handle that, but not they weren't a big drug bag. It's quite interesting that I, ju- <laughs> I judge my professional life based on about the degree of drug taking between each other. Yeah, it was it was a good run. It was very and, and it was very exciting. And, and also, when you go to LA, you go to America, and you represent a top band, you are king of the castle. You know, I I stayed at the, at the Beverly Hills Hotel, which was quite something. Yeah, and you get invited everywhere. You know, didn't quite get onto talk shows, but I'd been introduced as this is David. He's Culture Club. Well, no, I'm not Culture Club. I'm not actually in the band. You know, laid <laughs> up the sun. That lasts until that band aren't number one. <laughs> then nobody will return your calls. But when you've got that, you know, best seats in restaurants and you know, quite something. Uh, this is fun. So that, there were some very fun years with all that. My daughter was about four or five at the time. And she used to paint little stuff as kids do and you stick it on the wall. And she painted a picture of Boy George by Rachel, aged five, was at the bottom and I put it up in the office and I didn't think much about it and then when the Kissing to be Clever album came out and the CD came out on the inside inlay card of the CD was my daughter's picture <laughs> I thought, bug, where did they get that from? <laughs> and obviously somebody swiped it as they came out of the office. And there was, I wish, I don't know what's happened to that, but, um, you know, I wish I still had that. But that was, yeah, my little daughter's claim to, she, my daughter went on to very, very great things. And um, that was her first claim to fame, you know, the, the uh, a little picture of Boy George on the, um, being on the CD. You touched on how black artists in that era were being exploited. Do you think that's the case today? So they were all totally ripped off, whether they were signed to independent labels or major labels. Major labels were worse than the independent labels, yeah. And the whole system was set up to cheat them. And because they could, people could do it because they could. And black art, you know, there was nobody really speaking for the black artists. There was, there was, there was nothing. So that gave me a tremendous respect for the black artists and for the Jamaican artists because... You know, if they got a little bit violent or what have you, uh, there was a lovely guy I knew called Lloyd Price who wrote a very big hit called Personality. It was a huge hit. You know, but, yeah. um, Lloyd was great, and um, he 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 would go down the road signing a deal with everybody and get an advance from anybody because he knew that he was going to get ripped off. So he thought, well, if I'm going to get ripped off, I'll rip everybody else off. 
and you know, so he signed with ten different publishers. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought, good on you, mate. You know, and same with the Jamaicans. I mean, they never got they they are, in terms of them getting a fair shake of things. You can forget it. You know, no way. There. So when they do things their way, I respect it. You know, it may be inconvenient to me at the time, but I do respect it because how else are they going to get a fair shake? Even today, how else are they going to get a fair shake? I think it is better today. I, it seems to me that the rappers are more sophisticated. They're, you know, you, you look at the history of black artists. There's, there's some of those that shine for a while and perhaps make very big money. But then, so you've gone from A to B, but then you start looking at C and D, where they're in the bankruptcy court, you know, because the big money has... And I think today, the likes of Kanye West and etc., you know, it seems to me they're holding on to their money and investing it and, and will be extremely successful. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if one or two of them do disappear because they do something stupid, but or they trust the wrong people, really. But that's more to it, is trusting the wrong people. So, yeah, I have tremendous respect for black artists. And, I, you know, I worked with Gil Scott Heron, who was very revolutionary, uh, Huma Sakela, who was revolutionary, Roy Ayers, that wasn't, you know... Gap band, I, you know, I I don't know whether I was particularly look, looking out in that area. Maybe, maybe I did. Maybe I felt there was more opportunity because, you know, here was this North London white Jewish boy, as I said, you know, who was building a relationship with people who they had no idea who I was, and I had no idea who they were. What was it like to work with Gil Scott Heron? Gil was really nice. I like, and 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 Gil had a, a you know extraordinarily intelligent man and, and totally dedicated to his cause yeah, and he's getting a lot of respect now I don't know if anybody's ever made the film of Gil I think it might have been a documentary but I don't think the film has been made of Gil Scott Heron but very influential the revolution will not be televised and in the bottle and stuff mm-hmm. like that great stuff uh, Hugh Masekela had a number one album jazz album with something in the grass rhythm in the grass something like that but Hugh had to run, you know, the South Africans tried to kill him and he had to get out of South Africa real quick. Um, and then they sent a hit squad over to try and kill him in whatever the neighbouring country was. Can you tell us a little bit about how you met Marcus Garvey Jr.? Marcus Garvey Jr., Marcus Garvey's dad, was really the sort of founder of black power to some degree. He was sort of the first accepted black businessman, literally the first. Uh, I think the first black man to have lunch in the White House, dinner in the White House. Um, and uh, Marcus Garvey Jr., he was telling the stories of when the FBI were always at their house and they were, everything was bugged and all of that. Yeah, it was an interesting upbringing. And that was all part of a, a little side story, which I'll tell you about. With um, Dan, When I first met Danny, he was quite a, a suave New York guy. He, he was hugely caramel Danny any woman in the world he would he would hit on (laughs) he was just very charismatic he was dressed real nice and at some point in our relationship he became very African he became aware of his African heritage and he started to buy African art sculptures and wear African robes and one day I I went into the office and um, he showed me he's doing this project called Spirit of Africa where he wanted to put together the complete history, as much as he could see it, where certain iconic people in history were not known as black, but they were. I have no idea whether they were or not. I mean, he, he claimed um, Hannibal, Cleopatra, 
all sorts of people. I've no idea. <laughs> but he'd already done quite a lot of work. It was like the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, there must have been ten editions and more than that. And he, he'd hired people to do it. I mean, clever academics. So it was really good. And, you know, this was going to be a basis for records of fashion. And you're like, woo, this is going to be fantastic. And I really like that. And um, he put a call into Motown, which was the obvious home for all of this. Barry Gordy, I think, had left, or he wasn't around. I think he'd left. There was a bit some stuff going on at Motown. It was being sold, and he wasn't there. But Danny knew who the head of Motown was. Anyway, he set up a meeting in Los Angeles. So we go down there. There's me, there's Danny, there's his uh, black assistant, Jerry Spencer. Uh, I think there was it, three of us, might have been four of us, going into Motown. We get a lovely welcome by this guy. It was so nice. Opens the door. There was, there was a big room, 20 or so young, very clean-looking, well-cut, educated young black people. 1920, 21, looking at me like, well, <laughs> I didn't feel in danger, but it was strange. Yeah. Um, and the head of Motown said, this is Danny and Jerry and so-and-so and David. And, you know, we're very proud to have this. This is a project we're going to be involved with, and I want you guys all to hear it from the horse's mouth. Blah, 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 blah. And he goes, uh, Danny, Jim, you know, Danny stands there, says, David, why don't you do it? In front of all these, here's the one white guy in the room telling them their history. <laughs> um, and uh, I thought, right, okay. I thought it did it. I mean, yeah, they wanted, unfortunately, the company did get sold and they couldn't go ahead. But, you know, I didn't exactly get a round of applause, but I was like, no, there's something not right here. <laughs> that was a funny one with Danny. What kind of music was Bob Marley working on when you first met him? Reggae, ska. Um, I mean, he, his influence had been the um, the record in, in Jamaica, uh, the radio, um, when they were looking, you know, recording stuff like the um, the bands from Philly International and uh, sort of mohair suits and, and short haircuts and do you know, not particularly African or anything. Very very sort of the music that was very successful at that particular time. And I don't know what influenced Bob into reggae music. I think once he, he'd had a mentor for many years called Mortimer Plano, and Mortimer was sort of the head of the Rastas. And Mortimer said that he, had, he was the one who sort of mentored the young Bob Marley that's where probably the introduction to reggae uh, in whatever form it was would have come from and where i mean there wouldn't have been many rastas around in those days and um but it was the spiritual rasta meetings that bob would have started to get that influence and make that transition in his life to being a rasta i mean mortimer was really mortimer was the wildest looking man you've ever seen in your life i mean nobody had seen dreads up until that point he didn't have any teeth, you know, one tooth. And we brought him into England to help with the promotion. I, I sent a couple of women up there to, to get him through customs. I, I said, David, they won't let him in the country. <laughs> he only spoke a very strange patois. And he had shorts on, sandals, long toenails. Hey, look. Anyway, they got him in somehow. We put him in, in Notting Hill, so he'd be at home. 
And once the uh, the rest of the community of England and just a lot of the black community knew Mortimer was in town, they flocked. I mean, you, Notting Hill was had a, a wee black cloud over it for days on end. Um, I mean, they they he was revered, and there's a famous, very famous photo that when Haley Celeste, who is all important to the rest of the community, arrived in Jamaica for his first visit, it was Mortimer at the top of the steps welcoming Haley Selassie. And Mortimer had a, a, um, a sketchbook, a scrapbook, which he showed me. And there was some terrific stuff in there, early Bob photos, all sorts of things. And it would do was give you, because I think he realised this was his insurance in life. One day he could sell it for a lot of money, so they wouldn't give it to me. But I did see, oh, oh this is good stuff. You know, <laughs> if we keep massaging Mortimer, we'll get this, but we never got it. But he was very, very, I mean, from a Western point of view, an extremely weird character but a very religious mystical person uh, very, uh, and he meant a lot to a lot of people so yeah these were that's where bob's influences were coming from um i believe um i never had the opportunity to sit down with him and discuss how it had all evolved but when you think about you know johnny was recording and they're recording songs like stir it up i mean it's that very gentle reggae beat just as i can see clearly now do, 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 you know there's, there's that beat in there somewhere but it wasn't, and I shot the sheriff. But when, it's not until you start to get into the more serious stuff that you, you get strong reggae coming in there. Yeah, but was it was it reggae as reggae eventually came came out? Um, not necessarily by Bob, but other artists in Jamaica who, you know, Bob Bob was the the shining light that brought these artists through. It gave them opportunity because you know if. If you have a rec- reggae record that does well, then record companies will come down and try and sign every reggae, reggae artist they can. And if it's hip hop, they'll do the same thing. Their rapping is the same thing. So it gave a lot of artists the opportunity to to reach some degree of fame. You know? uh, um, yeah, but uh, I mean the reggae was there, and Bob evolved as an artist. Yeah. Which track really stood out for you? I think "No Woman, No Cry." Um, Although that wasn't recorded on our uh, on our label, we have about three hundred tracks, none of which are the the big hits. We don't have the big hits. We have very early Bob Marley stuff. We are working on one track at the moment, which we're going to release called Selassie's the Chapel, uh, which we've chosen to do because of the spiritual side of Bob and the world as it is at the moment. Um, and very few people would have heard that song before. Um, what do you mean by trouble in the world? Oh, there's there's so much trouble in the world. You know, this is this is Bob under very he- heavy Rasta influence. Um, hey, it's actually, this track is actually called Hail Selassie, which is what um, Selassie was known as, Hail Selassie. And it's about you find your own spiritual peace, find your own. You know, if you find your peace, then you'll stop making war. And there's a lot of war around. You know, I have grandchildren. I'm, I'm young grandchildren. I'm very worried about their future. The world is in a bad, dangerous place. I think the song, I mean, it's an unusual song to release here, but it does get inside you. The drumming on it is a very special spiritual drumming. Naya Bing, there is, if you get to listen to it, there is something spiritual about that. You know, it, it's, it is all peace and love it may not be your god it may not be your religion but i think it can cross over to cover both those situations 
Obviously, Bob was influenced by Lee Scratch Perry, the famous music producer. Did you ever meet him? Um, I said, Danny, the bathroom's full of pigeons. He said, yeah, brings them, Lee brings them in from Central Park. I said, why'd you let him go? He said, so a few pigeons. I said, there's not a few pigeons, there's pigeons everywhere. I'm not going to that bathroom. It's ridiculous. Beverly will go nuts when she comes home. I said, no, I'll be all right. Okay. So, and then he said, by the way, yes, Danny, um, if you go and sit in one of those chairs over there, don't fall asleep. I said, why not? And he, showed, he pointed to the wall, and the wall had been written on, almost so you couldn't see the wall anymore. And Lee was writing on every surface in the apartment, and Danny said he might try and write on you. He's a bit, yeah. Okay. I'll try not to be asleep when he's there. Not only had he written on every wall in the apartment, but in this beautiful block of flats with squillionaires living there, he'd written on all the the the, um, the, the walls of the hallway. He had done all this sort of situation, you know. So the people in the apartment block were going completely mad. I mean, Lee spoke, you couldn't understand a word he said. I mean, he had a, a patois within a patois within a patois. So I'd had the lawyers prepare a document whereby Lee said, he has no rights in these records whatsoever. And we were going to give him, I think, $20,000. Good money. And, you know, that would be the end of it. So I said, that after three days of the pigeons and the writings, I said to Danny, you know, oh, you know <laughs> this is not good. We ought to sort this out. Okay, so you do it. Okay. So I said, Lee, come here. And Lee's talking away in his bedroom. I said, we've got to sign this, um, this agreement. And Lee's looking at it, and I thought, oh, I've got a problem here. And then he starts in his Jamaican patois, okay? And then he goes into his room and brings out like a spear, like an assegai. Not exactly a spear, but it was like... And he's like, you know, sort of doing a war dance. I said, Lee, my tribe goes back a lot further than your tribe. I said, and if you don't sign this, I'm going to stick the assegai right up your arse. Then he spoke perfect English. He said, where do I sign? Again, the check, and that was it. And, and he denies signing that to his dying day. You know, but once again, total respect for that way of life. You know, genius producer. Rolling Stone's one of the top yeah, influential people who are terrific. Of course he's not going to run the life that I run, you know. How do you think AI is influencing the music industry? There's, there's not a lot of footage of Bob in the early years at all. I mean, there's footage of Bob in concert. There's not a lot of footage. And obviously we couldn't shoot a new video until this controversial invention called AI, artificial intelligence, came along. And we managed to create a video by AI, which is just fantastic. I mean, the quality of it is just fantastic. And it, it, it totally represents and supports the song. It's the, the, the mood of it is, is perfect and it may get people to you know stop and think yeah, and, and so you know we're proud of the fact this is not the first but one of the first AI videos it's been done in a very tasteful spiritual creative way um, so I think it sits alongside the song really really well really well I think it's just making an impact the Beatles uh, video and release, which I, I thought was 
not good at all. I, do, I didn't think it did the Beatles any justice, but that's just me. No, I don't think it's just me. I think a lot of people think like that. But it, that brought AI into the public eye. I think the single's gone number one all around the world, blah, 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 but that's the Beatles. So I don't know how much AI has been used in specifically promoting music. Do I think it will grow in its influence massively? It's going to be massive. Um, because, you know, once that that horse is out of the stable, you can't, it's, you can't put it back. It's, it's out there. Now we get something that can do that job of the video. I don't know how it prepares. I should know how it compares cost-wise, but you know, I don't know. But something that where you can create a video, you can create an artist, you know, you can create an artist like Bob. You can create anybody. Um, and it will have enormous influence on the music industry. And it will create all sorts of problems over rights and everything. It's, it'll be, it's a lawyer's, lawyer's dream. This you know, is going to pay a lot of school fees for people, this one. This is, this, is, this is a big one. This is a big one in terms of rights. It will take years to sort it out. And it will keep evolving, so the rights will keep changing. You know. And the other thing I believe in, and whether, I imagine AI will be integral in it, in two years' time, there'll be probably something up there very popular that you and hasn't been conceived yet. There'll be a new YouTube or an Instagram, which hasn't been. It might be, I think, you know, sort of three holograms where you can have the soccer players running around on your tabletop or something like that. But that's that. In our, in my industry, things didn't change very much. You know, you had a CD. There was only another. That was nothing. You know, a tape. That's nothing. That's just another way of getting it out there. But the change now with modern technology, where you know you, 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 you're almost out of date from the time you started, by the time you finish it, you go bang, 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 bang. And as an industry, we were not able to cope with that. We weren't able to cope with the speed of change. We were very slow moving. From what's meant to be a hip industry, we were very slow, innovative, you know, with innovation, um, which is how you got into download. You know, let the industry let download get away with it. You know. Before they woke up, you know. Um, so I, th I think it's going to be very exciting. I think there'll be massive. I mean, you could probably create a whole musical on it and, and do like Abba Voyage. I, I don't know. I think there'll be massive projects, and there's a lot of danger in it. There'll be a lot of danger. There'll be a lot of trouble over the rights and payment, and there's a lot of danger in that. I was going to say that I, I could place you in a bank robbery, but that's not, you're the technical guy, you can place me in a bank robbery. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of danger. There's a lot of dangerous stuff in there. And they're talking, how, how are they going to control it? Yeah, they have a big conference, because millions of them, they're going to say, oh, we're going to control it, we promise not to do that. That's total rubbish, you're not going to control it. You can only control it in the normal ways you do. If you, somebody puts something out that's blatantly obscene or blatantly political, you can, you can bring, hopefully bring it down. But you, you know, it shows people how to kill people not going to control it. Governments aren't going to be impossible to do, in my opinion, be impossible to uh, to control it. So it's out there. It's massive. I think it's the, the possibly the biggest thing that's hit the music industry in a long, perhaps in its whole history. I think in a year's time, if we're having this conversation, we're going, "Wow, look what's happened here. Look what's happened there." You know, wow. You know, you probably don't need a band anymore. You create an AI band. I think some people have created an AI band, but you create an AI band. <laughs> You get a great musician and do this. I haven't got that sort of, you know, where the band going to sleep that night? And, you know, I've always got this thing. I didn't get involved with artists because I didn't want to be caught 
three o'clock in the morning saying their budgery guy died, what should they do about it? Well, I don't care. <laughs> so you won't have to deal with live people. Um, and some people say that's terrible, but it's an evolving, it's an evolving process. I, I don't know what comes next. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, David. It's been fascinating to find out about how you became involved in the music industry right up until the present, where you're using the latest advancements in technology to breathe life into these music icons. Thank you. It's been fun.